That means I'm by myself up here. I'm not usually on this side of the stage, right? Who let this happen? <laughs> so I was thinking of all the ways that I could start off this morning. And I just kept laughing because last time that I preached, it was at a church that we were at before we came here. And guys, that's almost seven years ago now, which is pretty crazy to me. Uh, I showed my wife the, the message I was working on. And she, she didn't really look at the content. She just looked at how long it was. She was like, don't talk too much. Uh, so I didn't show it to her this time because <laughs> I don't want to hear that again. Uh, when Pastor Adam asked me to do this, uh, I took probably a little bit more time. I, I took a week to say yes because I really wanted to think about what what I have to bring. Did I have anything worth saying uh, that I've been thinking about, and I didn't want to do anything related to music, so uh, you're not going to hear a, a lot about music today, even though that's generally the area that uh, I speak to. But a few months ago, a few of us were in the car going to this church conference, and we were talking about worship, and really, this was centered on musical worship, but I think the ideas applied to musical worship in our conversation are relevant in an all-encompassing way today. One of the comments that was made about whether worship should be fun, man, it's a hard question to wrestle with. I don't know if you wrestle with that. I mean, I think the last two weeks of worship, both musically and non-musically, they've been fun. It's been really joyful to me. <clears throat> they've been meaningful. And I like challenging, so I was thoroughly glad to be challenged in a way that made me a bit uncomfortable. And yet that word fun, it brings about a specific connotation that everything is joyful or enjoyable, is pleasant or nice. And so the question that has had me stumped these past few days or, or weeks really at this point, can something hard or difficult be fun too? Can something that we should take very seriously also be fun? Because that's how we'll answer this question. And I was thinking maybe not in the traditional way, uh, but perhaps in the way that we can, as Scripture says, count it all joy, as it says in James 1. And I think that people that can count it all joy are people who carry Jesus very deeply inside of them. And so as I was thinking about this idea and I was preparing for and working through another event this week, Kathy Pinnow's memorial service, <clears throat> I was meditating on the Kathy that I had the privilege to know. And man, as far as I've seen, she was someone who counted it all joy. One who is set on being made mature and complete, not lacking in anything. And now knowing some of her stories that, and perhaps like you and I, her life was not just sunshine and rainbows, uh, although a lot of you know she somehow often made it seem that way. And my point is, though, that the Kathy I knew carried the joy of the Lord with her in both the difficult things and the enjoyable things. And I think that seems like a dichotomy. Two opposing things is a life lived in authentic worship. But I have to tell you, her true and authentic worship it cost her much. And my friend Kathy, she was just trying to be like Jesus every moment of her life. But we'll get back to that in just a little while. Now let's continue on this topic of worship. For these past two weeks, we've explored the idea of authentic worship. 
And I think that we have to ask ourselves a few questions as we go along here. What is worship and how do we do it authentically? If we're simply looking at definitions, the dictionary tells us that worship is to adore, to idolize, to esteem, to give worth to, to give reverence to, or homage. And I'm sure we've all heard this saying from a leader at some point. Worship is a response to who God is and what he's done. I like that one. It feels pretty full to me. And for the sake of being more precise in what worship is, we must break some previously held understanding and perhaps some bad teaching of what worship is. So these things I'll list next are definitely a part of worship, but do not create the all-encompassing view of what worship is. The first one is, what do I normally do? Music, right? The first one is music or singing, right? We've been taught through the years that worship is singing, or at least at least that's what, how I was taught things. The other most obvious are prayer in the gathered body of Christ, what we're doing now, right? Sunday mornings. These are the most common things we look to when we think of worship, but they make up in some cases a small fraction of our worshipful lives, especially when referring to only this gathered time together. And I was thinking about that statistic that you gave us two weeks ago, right? Do you guys remember what it was? The average believer attends church less than two times a month. Less than two times a month. And so I think that this belief that these three things alone within the context of the gathered body on Sunday mornings make up the totality of a believer's worship is one of the most harmful things to the believer's walk with and worship of Christ. And some might add a few more. And you might say, who is some? Well, this morning, some is, is me. Uh, through scripture. So let's add to the list a few more things that worship is not. It's not the clothes you wear, the quality of the building the body gathers in, or the way we got here. It's not in our perceived holiness or how much we can show each other, how much we can do for others. It's also not in the size of our giving as evidenced by the widow who gave all she had even though little, it was counted as much. And I think Paul says it best in 1 Corinthians 10.31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And although the emphasis there is a little bit mine, it's all of it. It's all worship. That's the point. And it took me so long to see this. And yet, we need to drill down a little bit more to a more detailed look defining worship, and it proves to be more difficult because it is both an act and an attitude. Paul defines it as an act when he says in Romans 12:1, "Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and perfect worship." And then Christ defines it as an attitude when he tells the woman at the well in John 4, all true worshipers worship in spirit and in truth. So we can know that true worship takes place on both the inside and the outside of the worshiper. And if we look historically, the Jews would have learned and understood and believed that these two things are inextricably linked, right? They can't be separated. And we saw this two weeks ago when we heard from Pastor Adam as we looked at the worship of both Cain and Abel presented. One and his offering was correct. 
And one and his offering was incorrect. And this encompasses both the inside and the outside here. And clearly both things need to be in alignment. Now I want to remind, rewind for a minute back to the word authentic. Authenticity. I like that word. My generation loves that word. And I spent a good chunk of my 20s attempting to be the most authentic person I could be. And to be honest, mostly what it made me was brutally honest uh, with a side of lacking in compassion, uh, which I'm sure my wife could tell you still rears its ugly head a little bit sometimes. And the world will tell you that authenticity is the idea that you should be your truest self, that the true and authentic self is the one that does whatever it desires, that lives however it wants to live, one that has what it wants to have, and one that becomes whatever it wants to become. But scripture, however, tells us a different story. It defines our journey of being authentic in another way. So we'll take another look at scripture. Ephesians 4, 22 through 24 says, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put, on your, put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And we are admonished by Christ to do it in this way in Luke 9, 23. Then he said to them, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. So the authentic self biblically is one that doesn't create its image, but casts it away to continue to look more and more like Christ. This is what it means to worship in spirit and truth. This is authentic worship. And I think that's what my friend Kathy spent her life trying to do. Look more and more like Jesus by imitating his worship and obedience to the word of God. Remember when Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 11, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. And I was thinking, I think we all imitate someone. And I think God is gracious in providing examples in each of our lives of someone who seems to model this well. But we have an even better example, right? We have an even better example that our Father in Heaven has provided for us. So that's what we'll do today. We'll take a look at three ways that Jesus is the perfect example of authentic worship. And as we start to look at these three examples, the questions I asked at the beginning of our time together have become more and more relevant to me. What should our worship look or be like? What might we have in our minds today? A good feeling we get when we worship or the thought of praising our Savior when we get the job we ask for or uh, one of my favorites, when our kids make the choices we want them to make. Hallelujah. But as I was praying about it today and uh, reading through the scriptures and really after hearing Scott's message last week, thank you, it became more and more clear that you and I should take a really hard look at the fact that the most important aspects of worship, when we look at Jesus in the scriptures, are how his life was marked by acts of sacrificial worship. I mean, his human life was born out of sacrifice and ended in sacrifice. 
And I think that makes this aspect of worship we'll look at today so important for us to pay attention to. So we have three things today. The first one is the first sacrifice. Jesus gave up his will. In John 6, 38, Jesus says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. Jesus voluntarily came down from heaven to do the will of the Father. And I don't know about you, but when I get there, and I'm there with the Father, I don't plan on being anywhere else. Uh, In fact, I spend a lot of days looking up saying, anytime now, Lord, like you can come right now. Uh, But Jesus, crowned in glory, crowned in honor, crowned in majesty, steps down from the right hand of the Father to become flesh and blood for our sake. What a sacrifice. I mean, what a savior. Humble and obedient for our sake. And it's hard to believe that we are to make big sacrifices too. But if we are to follow our great example of sacrificial worship in Jesus, then we should expect that God would call on us to do the same. Let's focus on another example God gives us in his word that perhaps we think looks more like us. Because sometimes it's hard for us, I think, to look at Jesus and think we can do the same thing. So we have Abraham. I mean, Abram. Can you imagine Abram's parents? They were just chugging along, farming or trades or or something. And scripture says this in Joshua 24.2. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. Long ago, your ancestors, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the Euphrates River and worshiped other gods. But I took your father Abraham from the land beyond the Euphrates and led him throughout Canaan and gave him many descendants. I've just been thinking about Abraham's story so much these last couple weeks. And I don't know whether Abraham was happy with his situation. I don't think we know that. And I don't know if he was looking to make a move or was he even glad to. Was the way his family had been worshiping bothering him? I don't know. What kind of plans had good old Abe been making in his life? We don't know, but it says that God took him and led him to where he wanted him to be. And I was, I was really thinking, did Abraham, while Abram even know who God was before this, what kind of relationship did they have? Not totally certain. Really only hints. But God had a conversation with Abram that changed everything. Genesis 12.1 says, Now the Lord God said to Abraham, Go forth from your country and find your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. So when we said before that God took Abraham somewhere, he didn't even know where that was. And he went. That's crazy to me. Like he didn't have an idea. I don't even go anywhere without pushing that thing in GPS, right? But Abraham, he just, sure, let's go. That seems crazy to me. He left his home, a place of comfort. He left his relatives, a place of comfort, presumably, to a land which I will show you, 
And for most of us, that's super uncomfortable, to say the least. And it was not going to be all sunshine and rainbows. It had to look like a sacrifice. I mean, I think so, and a big one at that. And he didn't get there and everything fell into place. God's promise didn't swiftly come to pass. No. There were years and years with lots of things in between that happened. I mean, a lot. Like, I was reading through the story again because it felt like it was a long time. And I was like, another chapter and another chapter and another chapter. It was a lot of years in between. So not only did he know what was, not know what was going on, but then he had to wait. He had to be patient. But scripture shows us that Abram was obedient to God nonetheless. Genesis 15, 6 says, Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. That was such a big deal that became, he became known by a new name, Abram to Abraham. Abraham had faith that God would do what he said he would, as he mentioned in Romans 4, 18 through 22. It says, against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations. Just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. And this is why it was credited to him as righteousness. And I believe this example of sacrifice is a challenging one. I believe it's so challenging to us because we, humans in general, but especially as Americans, have our lives set before us, expectations and all. I mean, from the moment that we find out we're going to be parents, don't most of us start planning? We're going to get, get him or her this. We'll do this. Ooh, and then we'll go do this. And then we'll go there. Then when they finish that, they'll have this and be this. Have you ever thought about that? It seems sort of normal. Like that's the way it's supposed to be. And I get that being charged with the care for a child requires some planning. I mean, I have made many plans for my own kids. I plead and pray often that my children will have a life different than mine. Better decisions, better education, better financials, just better lives in every way. I mean, we all make plans. but. Many of us never plan for our kids to be godly, know the Bible well, to be an active part of their peer spiritual growth. And quite frankly, most of us don't hope that God calls on us to sacrifice the things we think we've worked so hard for or call them to sacrifice the things we think we've worked so hard for. But may the perfect sacrifice of will by Jesus to do the will of our Heavenly Father, be perfect, the perfect template for us, for ourselves, our spouses, our children, our family members, our friends, that we, like Abraham, might be called by another name, by those around us. May we be called Christ-like, faithful, obedient, and sacrificial. When the world is looking in on us, what do they see? 
Do they see a life of sacrifice that mirrors Christ? Sacrifice too. He gave up his comfort. Last week I was scouring the internet on any specific information about Jesus and where he lived. I mean, I think we all heard those verses straight from Jesus' mouth about not having a place to lay his head. So I did the next best thing anyone with technology would do. I asked ChatGPT. If anybody doesn't know what that is, uh, it is basically AI, I think of it as search functions. Uh, so here are some things that it said, which was funny to me because it didn't, it didn't scoop up anything that I hadn't already written down. So here are some things I think most of us know. Jesus grew up with his family in a house in Nazareth. I mean, that's what scripture says. He was the son of a carpenter. And we generally understand that that probably means that Jesus was a carpenter by trade as well. And the Gospel of Luke tells us that Jesus was about 30 years of age at the start of his ministry. And by all accounts, it seems as if Jesus at that point had left his home, given up his trade, and brought only what he could carry with him. I mean, it's only a guess here, but I'm guessing Jesus wasn't carrying around a Nintendo Switch like my boys are inclined to do. Matthew 8.20 reads, Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. This sacrifice, I fear, might seem like the hardest sacrifice of the three we'll look at today. I mean, the whole world knows the saying, American dream. Have you been abroad? Have you lived abroad? I did for eight years. I can tell you, even people who don't live in our country, they're still trying to live the American dream, just wherever they are. The American dream is built on working hard. That's a good thing. Living fully, I think that's good. Accumulating much and getting as close to living out every desire we have as possible. Is that how we've defined our lives? Friends? Brothers and sisters? Is that how you've defined your life? I mean, I'll be totally honest. I didn't grow up with much, I think, by most of our standards now. And certainly was not taught how to use it, or just that I could use it for whatever I wanted. And frankly, now we have more than some and less than others. But my wife and I are still striving not to make money a focal point of our lives or our marriage. Very tough. In fact, the Lord and I have been having conversations about how that creeps into my view. And then has to be removed from view so that I can continue to see Jesus more clearly. I mean, I want to be a great husband. I want to be known as a provider, a steady rock, and the one my wife can count on. What's enough? And what is needed? And what is that little extra we can have, right? And I struggle like almost every other man I've met in this respect. I mean, at least every other Jesus-following man that I've met, is what I'm providing enough? Am I providing what they need? But man, I was really convicted this week as I was thinking through this section. Have I made their reliance more about me than relying on Christ? 
And so this one's hard. This sacrifice seems both less significant and somehow overwhelming at the same time. And yet, Jesus knew how we would wrestle with this. And he knew just what to tell us as we wrestled with the idea of having enough. Matthew 6, 28 says, And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you? You of little faith. So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. There seems to be an order to the kingdom here. First things first. Worship comes first. That's what we were made for. And this act of worship is a huge sacrifice to most of us. So I ask you again, what do you put first? Does work come first? Does saving up for that vacation come first? Your retirement? Or does that new house or fancy car seem to pop up first in your mind when you think of what you want your life to look like? Or does Jesus take center stage? That was what the song we closed with last week was about. Remember, Daylene was up here all by herself, and she sang that song in closing last week. Are we willing to remove everything out of view to worship Jesus and put him front and center forever? If he isn't the only thing that really matters here in this place, throw it all away. In fact, burn it down. And I'm, oh, I know that might seem overboard to you. And you might be thinking, uh, that, that's really just the musings of an emotional artist. But do you wake up thanking God for all he's given you? Whether great or meager, worshiping him all the same? Or are you a person whose worship of God is dependent on your ideas of whether his provision is sufficient enough in your sight? Now, this one's hard because please don't hear me incorrectly. It's not sinful to have things. It's not sinful even to have money. And so I don't want you to misconstrue anything. But as Scott pointed out last week, idolatry is when we remove God from center view and put something else in his place. And most of us, if not all of us, have been born into the disposition that things take the forefront of our thoughts and desires. And so Paul calls us in 2 Corinthians 5b. You didn't know there were a B, right? A's and B's. 2 Corinthians 5b, to take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. So we are called to follow in Jesus' footsteps in sacrificial worship. When he called his disciples to follow him, he did so in a way that required them to give up their profession, their comforts, for the sake of gaining him? A sacrifice you may have to make in order to be obedient to the will of God is that you may have to leave all that you hold dear in this life behind 
in order to follow the perfect example of sacrificial worship only found in Jesus. Surely we are called to do that. Romans 12.2 says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. And the last sacrifice, he gave up his life. It's hard to say that any act of worship Jesus gave unto the Father is like better than any other. That seems pretty silly. But I guess in some way, this last act of sacrificial worship that we'll examine today is all-encompassing. So it feels a little bit more weighty. Therefore. It must really indeed be the hardest act to follow. The last perfect example of sacrificial worship that I'd like to examine today is Jesus giving up his life. And I love how it's stated in an article uh, by this dude named Brian Rosner on the Together for the Gospel website. He says, Jesus dies to bring us near to God. And Jesus died to reveal God's character. Jesus completed his work in obedience. Twice he asked the Father to take the cup of death away from him and then in obedience, willingly, takes the cross. And friends, we are called by God in the same way in obedience and sacrificial worship to give up our lives. Luke 29, 23 says, Then he said to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Scripture gives us a great example of losing one's life in Paul. Paul sacrificed both his daily life and in the end his whole life in order to see the gospel spread. It's recorded that Paul was arrested in prison at least three times. And we don't know, it could be more. And it's thought historically that Paul was beheaded by the Roman government. And although you specifically might not be called to prison, to share the gospel. Many have been. And you might not be specifically called to lose your life, your physical life in light of the gospel. But many have. Each of us has been called to something, and it's not always the fun or enjoyable things. And I think that's why James calls us to count it all joy. We are called to follow Jesus' example in perfect worship through sacrifice. We are called to be his disciples and make disciples of Jesus Christ. And that call is to deny ourselves in whatever whatever way the Lord lays before us. And it won't look the same for any of us. And just as an aside, I think that's so hard, right? Because we want to put the way God's called us to sacrifice on other people. I was really thinking about this this morning. You know, I sometimes judge other people's walk with Jesus based on what I think Christ has called me to do. And so sometimes being the gather body is really hard because we look at other people, we say, oh man, they aren't doing it. But I don't know what Christ has called them to do. I can only by growing nearer and nearer to Christ know what I've been called to do. So again, it won't look the same for any of us except in our saying, hear God. 
I give you my will. As Jesus gave up his will, I give you mine as well. Or here, God, the world is saying that these things are the things we should value, cling to and obtain. But I want to give all that I have to see your kingdom come. Or maybe, Lord, this life has become very valuable to me, perhaps too valuable in my own sight. Do with it what you will. As Pastor M mentioned two weeks ago, authentic worship looks at a right heart, obedience to God, and taking care of unresolved sin. Then last week, Scott pushed against our tendency to replace worship of God with worship of idols. And so this week, I wanted to look at authentic worship through the lens of sacrifice, because I think that any aspect of worship that we will look at requires sacrifice. It costs us, and sometimes greatly. Denying ourselves and taking up our cross daily and following Christ requires an unwavering commitment to sacrificial worship. And thankfully, we don't have to look too far to find our perfect example. And also, thankfully, we don't have to do it alone. Christ has left us with a helper, the Holy Spirit. And he's left us with many, many more as you look around. He's put the people next to you there to help us in our walk of being obedient to him. So I'm going to start the closing. If you guys want to come back up. When I was meditating on what I thought the Lord would have me say today, all the rhythms of worship and sacrifice that I originally wanted to talk about seemed to come out as listicles. You guys know what listicles are? You hip to the internet jargon of the day? Listicles. Ten things you can do to be a perfect worshiper. That's a listicle. Yuck. Who needs more of that? I mean, I I don't need any more lists. And they weren't even small lists, if I'm being honest. They just kept growing and growing my little notes more and more. I wanted to give you more things. They were long lists I could use to tell us of things we need to do in worship. I mean, I promise you, again, I don't need more lists. I can't even get through the ones I already have. And yet, my brain keeps saying, if I do this, if I insert this thing here, if I add this to my list, and I think we all think we'll be good then. Because if we can check things off a list, we can be done with it. And I was thinking, imagine that, thinking we could be done with worshiping Jesus. Imagine thinking we could be done with discipling others. Just put in the thing there. Imagine that you could be done with all those things that we are called to. But my friend Kathy, she never seemed to be done with it. She never seemed to be finished talking about Jesus or how he changed her life or how prayer did this thing to her relationship with Jesus, and how her favorite songs she told me about drew her closer to Jesus. It seemed to never end. And when I zero in on the Jesus Kathy was talking about, it seems that Jesus was never finished either. He came to this world as an act of sacrificial worship to the will of the Father. 
He lived his life sacrificially, forsaking the things of this world, both in obedience to the Father and for our benefit. And lastly, he gave up his life on the cross as an act of obedience to further show us what perfect sacrificial worship looks like. A whole life. So it seems that worship is not merely the things we do between 9.20 and 10.40. And I love, Pastor M left a little note on my, my sermon when I sent over the first draft. Worship is seven days a week because he is our God all the time. And not just on Sunday morning. Amen. And I want to leave you with something practical here because I like practical things. I always hope that the pastor is going to leave us with something practical. Because again, there's that thing. Give me something, pastor, that I can do to succeed this week in worship. But it's not a list. What I leave you with is I implore you to sit with your Bibles, reading the word of God, praying that you would have the type of faith Abraham was credited with. And when he said yes to going out to a new land with God, believing that God is who he says he is and does what he says he's going to do, so that the list of things we've all been told to do to follow Christ won't just be a list of things we have to do, but a series of things we long to do as a part of our life of sacrificial worship to a God who has given us more than we could really ever imagine. Let's pray together. Father, our hearts, they long for the things we can see. They long for things we know that make us comfortable. But your call to us was to bear burdens and die daily to ourselves and live for you. That sometimes calls us into places of sacrifice, to move to an unknown place, live a life less glamorous than we hope for, and perhaps stand with you when the whole world seems to tell us otherwise. Give us the strength we need to be unwavering in our faith that you would be glorified and magnified in each and every aspect of our life. Jesus, you are our perfect example of worship and your life of sacrifice gives us everything we need to follow after you. May we hear your voice, be obedient to your voice and follow your will as we learn to sacrificially worship you today. Amen.